So if you live, work, or play around the Rittenhouse area, you may have noticed this week, which for those of you listening in the future is the third week of August 2018, that the ugly car dealership advertisements on the city trash cans have been replaced by hand-selected paintings, photographs, and other art by local Philly artists. This initiative is called Trash Can Takeover and was created and curated by this week's guest, Brendan Lowry. Now, we don't talk about Trash Can Takeover in this episode because it was recorded before it went public, but check out the show notes for a link to follow Trash Can Takeover on Instagram and learn more about the artists, their work, and how Brendan's partnered with Conrad Benner and City Fitness to make it all happen. But first... I shared the photo and there was a comment from somebody and he mentioned how I was just perpetuating stereotypes and I, you know, got defensive, but in reality, he was absolutely right. And I realized that, you know, I started to have this responsibility, right? If this account has thousands of followers and I'm supposed to be telling Philadelphia's story through people, it can't just be through my lens or my context. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and in this episode, I'm talking with Brendan Lowry, the founder of Rory Creative. Brendan is one of the biggest social media influencers in Philadelphia and is best known for the Instagram account he runs, Peebledelphia, which has over 85,000 followers. He's also a part of the founding team of Curulate, one of Philly's fastest growing startups. In this episode, we'll chat about how Curulate started as an Airbnb for parking and storage, but after that idea failed, Brendan and the Curulate team found a much more successful idea. Wow, we need this. We want this. How much does it cost? Can you come to New York to meet with our VP team? Whereas, you know, six months ago, I'm on Craigslist begging people to list their, their driveway. We'll also talk about how People Delphia began and how, as it grew, Brendan had to find ways to ensure it actually represented all Philadelphians. And so I think the initial thought was, oh, I need to explore more neighborhoods. But then I sort of realized, even if I did that, there's still all this context and bias that I'm not even aware of. And he'll share how through building a Philly startup, sharing Philly stories, and working with Philly artists, Brendan has fallen in love with the city and its people. Yeah, it terrifies me to to think about what my life would have been like if I would have taken that that job in, in New York. All this and more about Brendan Lowry, Curulate, Rory Creative, the life of an influencer, and People Delphia, right now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. So these days, being a professional social media marketer is a common and thriving career path. And in fact, many universities offer bachelor's and master's degrees in social media marketing and management. But in 2007, when Brendan Lowry enrolled in Temple University, that really wasn't a thing. And frankly, he himself didn't even consider it a career path. So he picked a major. Then he changed it. Then he changed it. So I initially went for film. Then he changed it. Um, I then switched to marketing and then advertising and then entrepreneurship. Um, I ultimately ended with public relations. Wow. Um, But there was a stint between, I think it was between freshman and sophomore year where, you know, sort of like I do with a lot of things, I quickly, for some reason, determined that I wanted to be an astronaut. So uh, using like the Temple online portal, I rushed to drop all of the classes that I had planned for the next semester. And as I went to 
you know, at all the beginner classes for the engineering uh, major or math major, whatever it was at the time, um, I was blocked and it said, you know, you need this level of math to be able to actually add this class to your, to your schedule. So I call my guidance counselor and he's like, yeah, what the hell are you doing? This was after <laughs> you had dropped your classes? Yes, this is after, right? Oh, so no. that's typically, you know, I've, I think I've been better about that, but sometimes I'm quick <laughs> to just rush to, to, do, uh, to do that. And he re quickly reminded me that in order to actually get into Temple, my freshman year, I needed to take um, a very rudimentary math class that didn't even get me college credit. Oh my gosh. Just to be able to attend the school. <laughs> so luckily he was able to add those classes back that I dropped and uh, I'm not on the path to be an astronaut. I still have hope that maybe one day they'll need someone to document a journey and I'll be invited. But for now, those plans have been shelved. <laughs> That's funny. Earth Adelphia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So you, you wound up with, you said public relations? Correct, correct. What was the plan at that point? So when you picked that major, did you know that that was going to be the one? No, I think, it, I think it got to a point where I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, at the time I thought entrepreneurship was, you know, strictly starting a lawn mowing company or opening a restaurant um, or opening some type of, you know, mom and pop store. So, you know, the stuff that I've done, you know, that I'm doing now, the stuff that I've done over the past few years at the time, that wasn't really on my radar. Um, I was doing a lot of things on social media and the internet with marketing, but they were all for, for fun or for projects. And I quickly learned, you know, that that's a skill and that I can apply, you know, all this knowledge of social media and digital marketing to a career. Um, but at the time, I really didn't know what I wanted to do in public relations. You know, there was some storytelling involved. Frankly, it seemed pretty easy, and I was just sort of eager to get to get my degree and really focus in on something to hopefully land a job after graduation. Yeah. So at that point, now, what year did you graduate? Was it oh? 2011. Okay. So you graduated in 11. At that point, were people even getting jobs in social media yet? Because, I mean, that's a fairly new thing, and I think it kind of all cropped up at once that people were actually hiring social media specialists. Was that on the table at the time that you graduated? It was just starting to get on the table. A lot of the opportunities were really junior or social media was a part of a larger, um, a larger role, especially in, in public relations. So, you know, P social media became sort of just a, a distribution point. So, you know, you had a press release or some type of story that was going out. You would pitch reporters, you would post your blog or to your website, and then they would just blast whatever was left into, into social media. So I think I did see some, somewhat of an opportunity there. One of my internships, you know, I was working with a PR firm and I sort of saw that they weren't using social media well. And it was one of those first experiences where I was like, wow, I know more than these people about this thing. Um, I, can, I can really help them. And so, you know, while I didn't exactly know what I was going to do, there was sort of the early signs that there was something here with social media and storytelling um, beyond just, you know, writing a press release. So what was your first move after graduating? So after graduation, um, I took a full-time job with a really <laughs> boring uh, healthcare, I guess, health benefits administration company in, in King of Prussia. I sort of sold them on this vision of me being a digital marketing and social media expert because... At the time, I thought I was because I knew more than people uh, that, that, you know, were working at the company. Um, but that 
you know, that didn't turn out too well because they were, they moved really, really slowly. I wanted to do all these cool and innovative things. And so I started to search for other opportunities while I was, while I was there. And I stumbled upon a company called Skillshare, um, which was a startup that had launched in New York City. And they were starting to open up sort of uh, different regions across the country. And the idea for Skillshare was, um, it was an online marketplace for offline classes. So anyone could list a class and something that they're an expert in. And then they would then teach it in person, you know, at a coffee shop or a library. Um, so I landed sort of, it was technically full-time. So I had this full-time gig at the healthcare company. Um, you know, while I was sitting in my cubicle, what I was really doing was working on Skillshare. So I was kind of digitally hustling, finding teachers to teach these classes, which, you know, at the time I didn't realize was going to be an amazing way for me to build my network because basically I would reach out to people who I thought had an expert, you know, expertise in everything from sewing or arts and crafts to, um, you know, building a slide deck for an investor, you know, presentation. So that was the first point when you started seeing the value of reaching out to just all kinds of different people in an area? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's when it really started to click that, you know, I can, I've been using the internet, you know, even in, in, in middle school and high school, using MySpace and helping bands, you know, build their MySpace pages and things like that, it was all for fun. But I started to realize that that same skill of building community online could impact my, my career. So shortly after that, you joined a local startup for yourself, correct? Yes, called Storeboy. Storeboy. Um, so it was interesting. So I actually, the Skillshare um, stint went really, really well. And so we had a big launch party to sort of open the, you know, unlock Philadelphia as a city that had classes. And one of the teachers that I had brought on to teach um, a class on how to raise money and how to create a pitch deck was Brett Topshi um, from, I think the company is now called Red and Blue Ventures. Um, and he's an investor. And at the Skillshare launch event, he actually introduced me to Apu Gupta, who had just started um, a company called Storably here in, in Philadelphia. And so at that time, I actually had a full-time offer from Skillshare to join them in New York um, to kind of build out the same model that I used to, to launch Philly. But then I also had this opportunity from Storably to, to join them full-time. Interesting. So you had to make the choice whether to stay in Philly and join an unproven startup or to go to New York and join this startup that's a little bit farther ahead of the game. Yeah, and way sexier. You know, they had, they had money from... Um, can't remember his exact name, but from a couple of big, you know, big time New York VCs and they were a consumer product that had thousands of users and it was just, it was way sexier at the time. And, you know, I love to say that, you know, oh, I, I chose Storably because I wanted to stay in Philly and I believed in the vision, but frankly, it was, you know, the decision really came down to, um, just, you know, just signed a lease after college for being in Philadelphia. New York was way more expensive. You know, thankfully that was the case because, you know, what we've done now from Storably to Curalate, which we make it into, um, has been a way, way bigger success and has been a way, a way better experience for me. Um, but I ended up choosing Storably. Did you feel like you were compromising at that point in time? Like, did you think you were missing out by not joining Skillshare? Yes. Really? <laughs> and especially you know, two or three months into this storably experience. Um, but I think that all goes with, you know, just being young and, and naive and, and maybe not seeing the bigger picture and the, and the bigger opportunity. So what at that point was storably? 
So at that point, Storably was, um, I guess the easiest way to describe it, um, just Airbnb for parking and storage. So the idea was that if you had empty attic space or garage space um, or basement space, you could list that on Storably.com and then rent that out to people in your community. And the peer-to-peer market was really taking off at that time. Airbnb had just closed a massive round that, that valued them at you know, a billion dollars, which now seems small to what their, their valuation is. Um, and so there was a sort of this excitement around people, you know, selling or renting the stuff that they own and sort of that peer-to-peer collaboration. So you guys got to work with some funding, um, but it wasn't too long until the decision was made to pivot, right? Right. So I think we we're about four months into Storably um, when... Uh, you know, everyone sort of realized that this vision of, of you know, the initial vision just wasn't turning out. Yeah, so was that like just a sort of growing feeling or was there an aha moment where you guys are just like, okay, this is not working out? I think it was probably a culmination of both. I think the data, you know, the, with someone like Apu, you know, leading the company and just really having a sense for if something's working and, 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 and just that, I don't know, that, that innate ability to... Um, yeah, just have that foresight. We just saw that we were getting a lot of press, right? Because the idea was cool. You would talk about this and the initial reaction from everybody was, oh, that's interesting. That's cool. Um, but no one was converting. And so we really started to, to determine that while people thought this was a cool idea, there were a couple of issues. One of the issues was that, you know, the demographic that we were, that is open to this concept is a younger demographic. And they don't have a ton of extra stuff, <laughs> right? To share. And, right, and then on the opposite, not only do they not have, they don't need it, they also can't, they don't have the space to host other people's stuff. So I think that, you know, there are concepts now that are building off of that that are doing pretty well. I think that we were just a little bit too early, but luckily Apu had the, again, just the foresight and the, and the data and the, um, yeah, just the vision that, you know what, this isn't working. We have a really solid team here. Um, let's... Let's possibly try something else. Yeah. So you have investors. You guys decide it's time to try something else. What do you What do you tell your investors at that point that you're essentially abandoning the business that they've invested in? What's the move? Yeah. So it was pretty terrifying. I I wasn't in the room. <laughs> you know, looking back, I would have loved to have been, but at the moment, I was like, "This is great. I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be here to tell Josh Koppelman that, you know, we've wasted <laughs> we've wasted this money and we don't know what to do." Um, but, you know, looking back, Apu had the right approach. He was very straightforward and honest and open and said, look, here's what's happened the past few months. This, this bet that we made and this, this uh, vision that we had, it's not working. Here's why it's not working. Um, we have some money left. We can give that back to you Do you, you want guys. it back? Yeah. <laughs> or, or we can, you know, we have a really great team. We have some other ideas. Let's, um, let's see where this, where this can go. And, and to our surprise, Josh was pretty happy. He said, you know, most entrepreneurs come in here and they put a dead body on the table and they, they're trying to find a pulse. Right. Um, you guys called a dead body, a dead body. And instead of wasting a year of our time and all of our money, you guys did an amazing job at showing and proving that this isn't going to work. That's a win. Yeah. So, um, what's next? Like, yeah, here's take some, take the money that you have left and, and try to prove out something else and, and see if there's an opportunity to raise more money and keep going. So what was next? Did you already have an idea? We had a few different ideas, you know, and personally for me, it was interesting because, you know, looking back, um, I always think that I've had this interesting mix of naivety and like, and solid instinct. Um, and at the time there was another co-founder, um, who 
in that transition had decided to leave Storably. And, you know, he took me aside and said, hey, Brendan, I'm, I'm leaving Storably. I'm going to work at you know, some large consultancies, one of the big four firms. And, um, and, you know, he sort of encouraged me to leave as well. I'm not saying you should get out of here, but saying like, you know, you don't have to stay. It may be in your best interest to start to find something else. Things aren't going, uh, going as planned. It's okay to leave. And for me, I was, I was surprised and I was like, what are you kidding me? Like Apu and, and Nick, who's the other co-founder and the CTO at the time, these are the two smartest guys that I've ever, I've ever worked with. We'll figure something out. So if you look at the data, I probably should have left, right? Like when a company is starting to fail, not, there are many companies that can take that little bit of money that's left and turn it around. Um, and again, <laughs> every consultant or all the data points probably pointed to me leaving and finding something else. But there was something about working with Apu and Nick and just being excited about the chaos of all of this that I stayed in. And we ended up taking a month to sort of brainstorm and come up with a bunch of different ideas. Um, and Curalate was really the one that, that rose to the top. So how many ideas did you say you guys came up with? What would you say? There was a list of 70 that we had in a, in a Google 70. spreadsheet. So you had 70 ideas for different yeah. businesses. Yeah. And, wow. yeah. and it's been fun to sort of, you know, we still email back and forth because we'll be on TechCrunch or we'll see a new startup launch and we're like, oh, that's, that's idea number 44. And we'll like point to the list. And, and, you know, of course, ideas are just ideas, but it's fun and it's clear that um, it was a special group that, that we had um, from all of our different backgrounds. And it was, you know, it was, it sounds fun. It was really stressful because we we're sitting there in an office just spouting out ideas and realizing like, wait a second, we need to actually build a process around this or we're not really going to get anywhere. So what was it about the idea that became Curalate that rose to the top? I think it was the initial uh, feedback and traction that we were getting from prospects um, that we were previewing the idea with. Oh, so you went out and tested this idea yeah, we before tested deciding. It. Yeah, so Nick, who's the CTO, just smartest, you know, smartest human uh, I've ever met and I think that I'll ever meet, um, you know, top of his class in Harvard in computer science, just really, really bright. So Apu was browsing Pinterest, totally unrelated to the concept yet of what we have, and, and noticed that it was really difficult to actually buy something that he saw because there wasn't a connection from the product that he's seeing on Pinterest to the actual page on the brand's e-commerce site. And so, so this is probably happening pretty frequently. So Nick built an algorithm, you know, in a few days that basically enabled me to put a URL into this site and it would then crawl Pinterest and find whenever images from that website were being shared to Pinterest, regardless if the brand's name was mentioned. So it would spit out a report that would say, you know, from michaelkors.com, here are all the top products that are being shared from Michael Kors website. Here's how many times they've been shared, here are the comments. Um, and so I was then able to kind of build a PDF and that would go on Twitter or LinkedIn and send this PDF to the marketing team from these big from these big brands and say, hey, did you know that the past week, this watch from michaelkors.com was the most popular product and it was shared X amount of times? And the reaction was, holy shit, how did you find that out? They must have um, gobbled it up. <laughs> yeah, can you come in next week, right? So we immediately had this reaction of, wow, we need this, we want this, how much does it cost? Can you come to New York to meet with our VP team? Whereas with, you know, six months ago, you know, I'm on Craigslist begging people 
to list their, their, space, their driveway, <laughs> their driveway, <laughs> knocking on doors. Right. So I think when we, when we, when we, when we had that feeling of, wow, people want this. Um, and you know, just Pinterest was growing at a, at a rapid, uh, at a rapid rate. We just realized that, okay, there's something here. You must've been so excited that this was blowing up like this. It was in, it was, it was a really cool feeling, right. Again, to go from, you know, three of us sitting in a room, you know, feeling pretty terrible about the fact that we're all going to have to go work corporate jobs. Um, and the, this, you know, we know we're all, we're all smart and we're capable, but not having that idea to then having, again, very senior people at very large brands saying, we want this product. You know, Pooh and I had, you know, some days we were 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., just back-to-back-to-back calls talking about the concepts and, you know, emailing Nick. Hey, Nick, this, this works, right? <laughs> These numbers that you send us, this is, this is real because, you know, we now have a meeting with this VP or this, you know, CMO. Um, so it was, a very, it was a very exciting time. At any point before Curelate took off, did you consider sticking with the safer route and maybe going back to one of those bigger companies like the one that you started with or were you just natural in the sort of high risk high reward startup world yeah i was addicted you know after after experiencing um you know the the healthcare tech company and what that was like um and having that sort of juxtaposition of now working in this high risk high high paid or fast paced environment um, I, there was never a doubt in my mind that this is the direction that I was going to head in. So Curelate would grow notoriously fast. They got a ton of funding, um, in just a few years, had multiple offices, um, I guess hundreds of employees. Um, when this growth is, you know, exploding like this, what's going through your mind? Yeah, it was, it was sort of chaos. You know, it was one of those things where we were growing so quickly that, it was rare that you stopped for a second to actually realize what was happening. So we, we would have a quarterly all hands meeting where Apu would go through all the financials um, and you know our goals and objectives, what we achieved the past quarter, they would basically present the same deck that they were going to present the investors. And I think that every quarter you would have that moment where it was like, whoa, we just added 30 employees this quarter. And we just did, we just increased our revenue by X percent. Um, so you would have those moments, but it wasn't, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't one of those things where I was like realizing, yeah, I don't know. You weren't I, stopping <laughs> to smell the roses per se. Yeah, yeah, it was just sort of happening and it was fun and it was chaotic and it was, it was all really exciting. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear that a lot in guests, you know, when, when stuff's exploding like that, you're just onto the next thing all the time. Um, for better or for worse, I guess. Would you say that at this point in time, you know, before we go on to your current ventures, do you take any time to stop and smell the roses a little bit more than back then? Or are you still kind of go, go, go? I'm still go, go, go. I think it's just part of my personality. And I, I, wish, I wish I was able to take a step back a little bit more, but I think I get more excited about what's next as opposed to what's happening at the moment. Yeah, gotcha. Sometimes to a fault. Um, but it just... Yeah, it's just sort of innate for me. So tell me about the moment while the chaos that is Curulate's growth is going on that you had the idea to start People Delphia. Yeah, so People Delphia initially started as, um, you know, for very selfish reasons. <laughs> you know, I wanted, at the time, it was about two years into Curulate, um, and I wanted to sort of meet people outside of just the tech world. And I felt that I wasn't, 
connecting with enough creatives and people from other industries. And so I thought that people at Alfie would be a great way to ask anyone for coffee. So instead of just emailing someone and, and saying, hey, can I pick your brain or I'd love to meet you for coffee, I'm able to offer them something by providing them, you know, a cool picture or some type of Q&A profile. So that was the initial concept behind People Delphia. And then additionally from, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset, I saw Humans of New York and how in just a, you know, a few years that went from an Instagram account to New York Times bestselling yeah, a business, right? And a yeah. business and, a, and an entire platform. And so it struck me as a big opportunity, not that I think that people Delphia will ever come close to what Humans of New York is. And it, frankly, it's now very different, but there was just something there. And I was surprised that no one had tried to yet replicate that concept of focusing on people in a very specific demographic and, and in a very niche way of telling people's stories. Yeah. So, you, you know, you had that utility behind it, right? You wanted to uh, you wanted to meet other people. You saw what Humans of New York could do. <clears throat> Today, Peopledelphia has over 80,000 followers on Instagram. Did you think that that could ever happen? Is that what you were driving for? Or is it another one of those things that just kind of, oh my gosh, you're, I'm onto something here and it blew up? Yeah, there was, you know, <laughs> at the time, I, I didn't know how big it, it, would, it would become. Um, and I think with Instagram was still fairly new if, in, in sort of using Instagram as the only platform or the only medium for a blog or for, you know, what people Delphia still doesn't have a website. Um, it was just strictly that Instagram account. So I don't know. It's hard to say if, if, if this was the expectation and there's still a lot that I want to do with it, but, um, it was, it's fun to see it grow. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting and exciting that I now have this big platform to, to share ideas and stories with. Was there a moment that you recognize that it was growing to be more than something that just gets you coffee dates? Yeah, absolutely. So, so initially, yeah, the concept was sort of using it to get coffee dates. I would take a portrait of somebody and then share a quote from them. Um, but I quickly learned that that was really difficult. So in my mind, this Humans of New York thing, which was so easy, you just stop, you just stop a stranger and ask them to tell, tell you about their life. There's clearly a process and a talent that Brandon, I think it's Stan, has from Humans of New York um, that I don't. So it's very difficult to do just that. So I started to shift from this idea of portraits and stories to really just candid moments, because that's one thing that I, I really love is candid kind of street photography. So I started sharing moments from my travels and my experiences in Philadelphia. Um, and it was growing and it was, it was getting some decent engagement. And then, you know, there was one day where I posted a photo of um, a street musician. It was a, it was a black man playing a trumpet and I shared the photo and there was a comment from somebody, um, which is one of the first negative comments that I ever received. And I was probably at a few thousand followers at this point. Um, and he mentioned how you know, I was just perpetuating stereotypes, right? I wasn't showing other black people in, you know, a tech uh, job or in a suit or exploring other alternatives outside of just street music. And of course, my my initial, you know, white privileged reaction was, uh, you know, I what are you talking about? Like I share all types of races and I, you know, got defensive because I felt like I was being attacked. Um, but in reality, he was absolutely right. The stories that I was telling and the paths that I was going down was all through my lens of, you know, where I work, the friends that I have, the places that I live. And I realized that 
you know, I started to have this responsibility, right? If I'm, if this account has thousands of followers and I'm supposed to be telling Philadelphia's story through people, it can't just be through my lens or my context. Um, and that was an exciting moment because, you know, it, it sort of changed my uh, view on the account and sort of how I'm telling other people's stories. But additionally, it really started to drive an extreme amount of growth for the account. Um, so instead of, the account just being limited to my content, which you know was dependent upon how many good photos I could take that week. I was able to regram and reshare other people's photos. So I was able to share more photos at a higher volume, which drove more engagement. And then additionally, whenever I would share someone else's photo, they would then tell all of their friends and that would drive new followers. So it was a really interesting moment because one, it, it changed it changed uh, you know, a lot about my perception of, of the account and just how I view kind of this platform that I have. But then additionally, it started to drive a ton of growth. Yeah. So, so I want to go back to that moment when you, know, you had that sort of defensive reaction. How then after you sort of got over that first moment you know, and you let the wall come down and then you looked through and, and agreed with the comment, did you immediately think, well, I got to get other people to post or, or how did you approach that? I started to think through, yeah, how I can, how I can uh, get other lenses, get, get other lenses. And, and so I think the initial thought was, oh, I need to explore more neighborhoods and I need to step out of my comfort zone a little bit more. But then I started to realize, even if I did that, there's still all this context and bias that I'm not even aware of, <laughs> you know, as a 20 whatever that was at the time, 22-year-old white male, right? Um, and so, you know, I'm really excited about the fact that I realized it at that time because that, that allowed me to, again, open up the platform to share other people's content and it really helped the account grow. And, and now I, I, I'm very intentional about the type of content that I'm curating on the feed and the stories that I'm telling. Um, and I certainly have a long way to go in, in understanding that, but the fact that I'm aware, I think is the most important first step. Well, that's ringing a lot of bells for me because we're talking on a podcast that's supposed to tell Philadelphia stories. So, you know, that's a ton of really, really valuable perspective that I'm definitely gonna take back and probably ask you a lot about when we uh, stop recording. So <laughs> that's, that's really great. So, you know, you start posting other people's content, it starts becoming this thing that's no longer your lens. It's no longer your thing, really. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. And it's funny because I, some people still don't even realize that they're not all my photos, which is interesting because I give photo credit to the person. I, I tag the photo with that username. Um, but I would say that, that now most of the content that's, that's featured isn't my content. Well, you still, though, are extremely active and have a ton of followers. So you have your own personal Instagram account. Even your dog, I think, has 10,000 followers, right? She <laughs> Can does. we ask she's, about that? She's How more do... popular than most people. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy that I have 500 and how did your dog, didn't she just like turn a year old or something? She's a year. Yeah. So she's, she's grown her account to 10,000 followers, uh, within just a year. I think, you know, and even with part of the reason that Peabodelphia was able to grow so fast, yes, there was the viral loop of sharing other people's content, but you know, I'm just a nerd when it comes to growing these communities. So when it comes to understanding different growth hacks and ways to get as much eyeballs on the content and ways to grow, you know, the off followers authentically, um, you know, having Curalate at my disposal, I still, you know, hopefully Apu isn't listening to this, but I still have my Curalate login. I'm not paying for it. Um, but I'm still able to use those tools that I've helped create in a way too at Curalate 
um, to help me grow these accounts. So part of it is just my ability and my, my uh, yeah, just my, the strategy that I have in place to grow these accounts. And the other thing is just I'm, I'm a really good storyteller on, on social. So that helps. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to ask your pup for some pointers as I look to grow the Philly Who uh, <laughs> influence. So throughout this time, as, as People Delphi is growing, I got to imagine you're spending a decent amount of time on it, right? No. No. <laughs> no. Okay. So how? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I say that jokingly. It's, I would say the day to day, there actually isn't that much time. Um, I, I want to dedicate more time to, it and I keep telling myself I, I want to look for, you know, an intern potentially to, to act as an editor. But, you know, right now on a day to day basis, I have no content calendar. I have no plan or strategy. I'm, if I'm bored, I'm looking, I look through the people Delphia hashtag. I save a photo that I think is, is good and is a good representation of what the feed should be. And I regram and I repost it. Um, now, outside of that, I'm working on, you know, larger brand campaigns and I'm working with a few nonprofits to help tell their story. So those things take more strategy, but. Well, backing it up though, in, in growing this account, you're still working for Curolate at this time, right? So would you say that that at that at that time it took a lot of time. Like, were you was it another one of those scenarios where you're you're at your desk and you kind of you know are off to the side building something else, just like it was the case uh, with your with your first venture? Yeah, and I think that that is true. So I, I was spending a decent amount of time on it while at Curulate, but it was always a project that was informing and helping what we were doing at Curulate as well. So using Curolate's tools, being able to understand how Instagram works, being able to understand from a brand's perspective what metrics I'm looking for in order to actually measure the success of the account and the success of the content. So anything that I was doing for PeopleDelphia was also then lending uh, toward, you know, product development at Curolate or you know, yes, you know, strategy at Curolate as well. So they were somewhat, they were somewhat connected. So you left Curulate a year ago. Curulate had uh, continued to grow, received more funding. It's still, as I understand, growing today. Um, why did you leave? I didn't want to be a software marketing executive. Um, so it got to a point where as the company was growing and we were starting to really scale out the marketing team, you know, I had a very serious conversation with Apu about what do I actually want to do? And, you know, it was clear that I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be a software marketing executive. I didn't want to always work in the tech space and work on software. I just had other desires and, and other things that were interesting to me. Um, and so at some point we had made that decision that, okay, well, that's not the path that you're going to take. Um, and so I think for about a year and a half, I was helping with other projects um, sort of acting as brand evangelist where I was going and talking about the importance of social media, the importance of great content. Um, sometimes being the first person to have a meeting with a prospect, right? Because I'm talking high level and not trying to sell them on anything, just talking to them about the importance of social media and why great content is important. And then of course the sales team can then come in and talk about why Curolate needs to be the platform yeah, to yeah. sort of track and power all of that. Yeah, so... Then at what point did you decide it's time for me to go out on my own? I think I left one of those meetings and I realized that 
I like that conversation around social media strategy and, and, and brand marketing more than, you know, the tech side of things. Um, and I was starting to do some consulting on, you know, content creation and social media strategy, influencer marketing outside of Curolate. Um, and so I started to realize that that's really the path that I wanted to, to go down. And then you must have been terrified to have that conversation with the two guys that you built this with, right? Yeah, it was really, it was really hard. Um, and, you know, I probably delayed that conversation for three or four months. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to make the jump, but I just wasn't, I wasn't ready yet to have that conversation. And it's interesting, one morning I woke up and I just didn't want to go into the office. I, I had no desire, which was, you know, very different than a year prior to where I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm not sleeping at night because I was legitimately that excited about what we were working on. Um, and so when I had that feeling, I just sort of knew that that was, that was it. I had to, I had to go. So that day, you had I, it that day, I had it that day. So it wasn't this thing where I planned this presentation or I, you know, had this beautiful exit strategy in mind. I, I told a poo I needed to meet with him and we, we had that conversation and I let him know that exactly what I'm saying now is that I, I just didn't have the, I didn't want to come into the office today and I didn't have that desire. And how did he respond to that? The response was overwhelmingly positive. He had told me that he was actually really excited for me and he, he was surprised that this conversation didn't happen sooner. I think for, for him, he wants to see people leave Curolate and go on and start, start their own ventures. And, you know, for me, I mean, he was really, you know, he's my, my biggest mentor and someone that I worked with from the beginning of my professional career. And so I think he's, you know, he's excited to see where I'm able to take what's next um, and, and is excited to see me grow. So the conversation went really, really well. We, we worked on, you know, a short timeline of how I, how we, you know, announced it to the company, how I would transition out of things um, and, yeah, it went, it went really well. So you were surprised that it went so well. I was surprised. Yeah. Mapu's, you know, <laughs> he's a tough guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, at the time I thought that I would be letting him down, but in reality, you know, I had hit the point, I had hit the sort of the ceiling within the company of where it was going to add my value, that my skill set and the things that I was really good at and the things I wanted to focus on just weren't weren't as valuable as they were at the beginning. You know, that warms my heart. I actually went through a similar situation myself recently. Um, after spending four years at the company that, well, my first job out of college um, as a software developer, uh, for a while I had decided that it was time for me to move on to do other ventures between the podcast, between Leave It, the company that I'm about to launch. And, uh, you know, I just every day knew that the conversation needed to happen and just wanted anything but to have that conversation. And then I spoke to the leader of my group at Cigna and his name is Cam and he was in town. He lives in Portland. And I told him the story. I, I went through the pitch. You know, I'm sure you rehearsed it in your head a million times. I did right, the same right. thing. Uh, went through the pitch, said, this is what I want to do. And then you just kind of brace for a minute and you're like, <laughs> oh no. And, you know, Cam kind of just, I saw him kind of look down, disappointed for a minute. And then it was just a split second. And then he immediately looked me in the eyes and said, that's awesome. I'm so proud of you for doing this. I'm so excited. How can we help you? And it was just the weight of the world off my shoulders. So totally, totally relate with that. I imagine that's how you felt as well. Yeah. And it, it really, it made me even happier about the experience. And, and you probably felt the same way because it, corporations and these companies often talk about how 
they value you as an employee and they want to see you grow and they're excited about your professional development. And, and most of the time, I think it's a bunch of BS. But for Cam to sort of have that sentiment with you, it, it really meant that, wow, they were honest and they th that experience that you had was, was you know, authentic. Yeah, yeah. And even from a, a, a perspective of, you know, we had just built a team here in Philadelphia. You know, he extended his team from Portland, put it here in Philadelphia after I had been working with him for a long time, almost built a team around me. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking like, we built this together. We've been, you know, we spent the last year, you know, getting this going. And, and for me to just leave, I, I felt awful. But like you said, it, the support was there. It's awesome. And you, you left that day and you felt like a million bucks. Oh, and I still do, man. <laughs> yeah. and, and still very, very thankful for that experience. Um, just so glad that that went so well. And it just is a testament to how real the relationship was. It really was that positive. It wasn't, it wasn't BS, which is, I think you and I are both fortunate about. Today, you said you do a lot of work with you know, brand building, content curation, and you decided to start your own firm. Is that right? Yeah, so I, uh, I started the LLC called Rory. Uh, and we frame, sort of frame the agency as a creative agency. So now you, your full focused time gig is that conversation that you mentioned that you were having where you walk into a room and, and just say, how can we, you know, how can we make your social presence better than you ever imagined? You get to do that every day. Yeah, exactly. And I think for me, social media is such an easy way into the brand and easy way to start the conversation because most brands are doing an awful job at it and it it's so it's so clear to me why and i i have very very um i have processes that i've built and strategies that i've built that can apply to a lot of brands and a lot of different industries for social media and it's a very easy way to get in the door and then what's exciting is how that conversation then expands from you know just instagram strategy to you know, how can we actually approach that same problem we're facing on social? How do we solve that same problem for email marketing or for, you know, our next outdoor event experience? Um, so the, the, the thinking that the strategy and the thinking that we do within the company for social media, um, we can apply that to a lot of different marketing channels. And that's what's been really exciting to see it go beyond just social. So how is your relationship with Philadelphia today? different than what it was when you were making that decision of whether or not to stay in Philadelphia or to move to New York now that you've, you know, sort of built a whole social presence around the city. I almost get scared sometimes thinking about that moment when I had to make that decision versus Skillshare in New York or Storbly in Philadelphia. Um, and it's, yeah, it terrifies me to, to think about what my life would have been like if I would have taken that, that job in, in New York. And you know, I'm sure I would have figured it out and, and I'd be, you know, I'd be um, hopefully on, on the level of, you know, my career and happiness that I am today. But yeah, I can't imagine not being in Philadelphia for these past, you know, six or seven years. Um, and, and, you know, because of Curalate and Peopledelphia, um, I've been able to really have this amazing network and this amazing platform where I'm able to get to anybody, you know, in the city, you know, within a few emails or a few connections. And that's really powerful. And I'm just starting to realize that and I'm just starting to access that. So there are a lot of projects I'm working on and a lot of things that I want to work on that um, now that I've done that work and I've built those relationships and I've built that platform that I have, yeah, I have this platform to do some really cool things over the next couple of years. What would you say is the most surprising thing about being an influencer? 
how much I hate being called an influencer. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Why? I just, yeah, the, the, the term is, it's such a, and I, I mean, I have to use it on a daily basis. It's become such a, a buzzword. And I also think that people have this aspiration to become an influencer, which to me is just the wrong mindset because if you're trying to become an influencer, that means you're not authentic about what you're trying to actually share and the stories that you're trying to tell. I think the best influencers are people who just happen to be an influencer because they've been telling really great stories and building really awesome communities. Um, and then because of that, they just now have this, they have this platform. Um, so I think, yeah, the most surprising thing is how much I hate being called an influencer. Um, but in addition to that, I think one of the most surprising things um, is how that's now impacting my new venture and you know my lead generation. So while it was always in the back of my head that by building these platforms, it'll it'll lead to more business opportunities. Um, you know, people at Elfie and even my personal Instagram account have really been the main driver of lead generation for all of my new opportunities. Because now that I have this audience on people at Elfie, this audience on my personal account, every time I push out content that's a constant reminder to that community that I'm really good at sharing stories and, and really good at creating cool, unique content. So it's been really interesting to see that that's my main, my main um, kind of funnel for lead generation at the moment. So I'd like to ask you a couple questions that I ask all my guests just to get different perspectives, a variety of perspectives. Um, what would you say is a common misconception about you? I think there are two things probably. The first thing is that I'm, I'm a really social person, right? So because I'm really good at being outgoing on the internet and telling these stories, I think that people, people probably assume that I'm, I'm an extrovert because I am very extroverted online and I can be very extroverted offline and I'm very good at it, but it's very exhausting for me. So I think that's probably one misconception. Um, and then another... Yeah, and I've, st I've started to, to try and be more authentic on Instagram and tell stories and show more of the lowlights. Um, I think another misconception is just, wow, this guy just gets paid to travel all the time and his life is so perfect. And, and in reality, it's my fault that that perception of me is out there because those are the stories that I'm telling. That's what I'm pushing out there and that's what people are seeing. Um, but there's a lot of hard work and a lot of late nights and a lot of tough days that go into, you know, the, the work that I do and the, and this company that I'm trying to build. Well, I mean, a lot of people, I think nowadays agree with the fact that what you see on social media is generally just the highlights and, you know, it, it kind of can be discouraging to look at everyone's highlight reel when, you, you know, you don't see their lowlights, as you say. So, yeah. And I, I think we're now at a point where people are aware of that. Like people all agree that, okay, these are all highlights, but we're not yet at the point where people, when they're seeing that highlight, that's top of mind. So even though we're aware that these are mainly highlights, when you're consuming this content every day for hours, when, you know, all adds up at the end of the day, how long you've been looking at Instagram, it's, it still isn't top of mind that these are just highlights. So one thing that I've been trying to do more is, is really show the process and talk about some failures, talk about deals that I've lost, um, talk about a tough day that I'm having because, yeah, it's important for people to know that, you know, I'm just because I'm really good at taking photos and really good at telling a story, that doesn't mean that my life is these, you know, the highlights, just the highlights that I'm putting out there. That'd be a weird life anyway to just have highlights. Then it'd be just, right, right. it'd be highlights, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, if you could send a message to yourself in the past, 
at any point in time, whether at Curlate, before Curlate, even when you're picking between, you know, 500 majors, would you? And if so, what would you say? I don't know if I would want to go back in time and, and, and tell myself to do a certain thing. Let's put it this way, because you know what? I get that a lot, actually, with this question. And I agree, like, you know, if I knew what I know now, then I probably would have made another decision and I wouldn't have the great things that I have now. So I wouldn't. But is there something that you would tell maybe somebody who's sort of following in the same path? Butterfly effect aside, right? Yeah, butterfly effect aside. I think patience, patience is really important in understanding the bigger picture. Even I struggle with that now, which is like funny because I'm telling myself that right now in this moment and two days from now, I'll be in a situation where I need to remind myself of, of patience. But it's easy, it's easy to forget about the bigger picture. You know, even in, in, you know, going back to that moment with Storbly and Skillshare and trying to make that decision, if I would have had the money, I would have went with Skillshare. Um, but looking back, it shouldn't have been about the money. It should have been about patience and really understand the bigger picture. With Storbly, you'll be able to be at the ground floor of something, be part of the founding team um, and go through way more intense trials and tribulations. Um, so patience would have been a key factor in that decision if, 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 you know, if money wasn't the, the main deciding factor. So yeah, I think patience is a big issue. And then also, I mean, I just really, you know, I have ADD and just really struggle with starting. It could be anything as simple as sending that email or getting, you know, getting my, getting whatever's in my head out in a document, but just starting. And I still need to tell myself this on a daily basis. Sometimes it takes longer for me to get something started than it does to actually execute on the project. Um, you know, I, if, if I didn't have a girlfriend who was very specific about how our apartment should look and be styled, I would have a Nike poster on the ceiling, right? So when I wake up in the morning, I just see that, that symbol, which means a lot to me from going, you know, doing basketball and things in high school, but just do it. Like just get started because that's, that's something that still holds me back. Um, so that's something that I would tell myself then and something I still need to tell myself on a daily basis. Have you read Phil Knight's memoir? I have not. I just crushed that on a Euro trip. I was there for 11 days, read the whole thing and still experienced Europe, but, uh, Highly, highly recommend that. Some incredible stories, some great perspective. It, it came out recently, I think. And it's amazing how I th there was a period of time, probably two months, where I was reading the Steve Jobs um, autobiography. And I, I can vividly remember my, my level of productivity and my level of um, just excitement about what I was doing. So it's crazy how reading a book oh. can totally change your context and, and your world. So, And sometimes it doesn't even totally change it. Sometimes it just gives you a little tweak in your perspective or the way you're approaching things that just opens the floodgates. Yeah. Which is, and sometimes that's all you need. And, and something as simple as just opening up that document or sending that email. I'd love to hear, if you read through that, I'd love to hear how his stories of how Nike got started and grew would be similar to your experiences with the Curelate. We'll so do a part two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, part two. So from your perspective of, you know, social media and, and as an influencer, what do you think is the most encouraging thing about Philadelphia? I think the, the one thing that's really encouraging is just the millennial growth of the city. Um, so I think in the past four or five years, Philadelphia has been the fastest growing millennial demographic. And to me, that means that brands are going to want to reach that millennial demographics. So I think in New York and San Francisco and Chicago, these higher 
sort of tiered cities in terms of like brand marketing spend, there's a lot of noise. Um, and so I think Philadelphia is sort of untapped and there's an, there's an interesting opportunity to reach millennials because not a lot of brands are spending the money that they should yet to reach that audience. And I've seen that with people at Elfie. I think over the past you know, two years, I've done campaigns with Lyft, um, Anheuser-Busch, um, and this new um, real estate company called Compass. And it's, you know, I, I can sense that that's why they're investing in these campaigns with, with people at Elfie and with content through Rory because the millennial demographic is exploding here in Philly and they see it as an untapped market and they're going to be a little bit early. If you could send a message to every Philadelphian, like whether a text message or an email or just a billboard, whatever, a message that every Philadelphian would see and can take a moment to ponder, what would you say? Do something uncomfortable today. I think about all the different experiences that I've had in my life and every great experience has come from some type of discomfort. Um, and that could be doing something that scares you or something as simple as you're not looking at your phone while you're in an elevator with somebody else and force yourself to say hello and ask that person how they're doing. Um, you know, I've had this idea for, for an app where it's very simple. Every day it just texts you or, you know, gives you a pop-up notification that tells you, that gives you a task that will put you outside of your comfort zone. Um, something as simple as, you know, when you're at Starbucks today, ask for a 50% discount. Yeah. Just do it. <laughs> see <laughs> right? what happens. Just see what, see what happens. Yeah. Chances are they're going to say no. Yeah. But when you start to constantly, I don't know, put yourself, you know, step out of these, the, this boundary of, um, of, yeah, just when you, when you put yourself in, in these feelings or these situations where you feel uncomfortable, um, know, you start to learn more about yourself and you start to open up your eyes a little bit. So, yeah, I don't know if that's too general of, of a statement to say to everybody. Not but. at all. I mean, that example, actually, so when I hear that, I think of, you know, stuff like taking risks and, and stuff like, you know, more, I, I put it more businessy, you know, type thing, take a risk like that. But what you're saying there is a really interesting way to think about it. You know, I think we, we put ourselves in social boxes, like, you know, we, we apply these boundaries, as you said, of social behavior that may not be necessary, right? So what would happen if you did ask for a 50% off? Or what would happen if you did talk to the person in the elevator or the subway platform? They may not think you're weird for that. I think a lot of people assume that, right? And you could build a great relationship or get half off your latte. So I yeah, love that. Yeah, I think it goes to you know, this meaning that we, that we put into so many things throughout a daily basis that we're not even aware of. So for instance, when you wake up on Monday morning, already from the time of day that it is, the gender that you are, the month, the temperature, the fact that it's a Monday, you've already made a bunch of uh, assumptions and you've already determined what your day is going to be like wow. because of all of these made up constructs, right? Yeah. Oh, it's a Monday. Shit, it's Monday. It's gonna suck. Right, but Monday isn't real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. Like if you, if you could erase the fact that Monday is a Monday of what society considers a Monday, you would 1,000% treat Monday differently. Wow. Um, and so when you can start to be aware of that and start to remove that meaning from different aspects of your life, and it's not as simple as 
you know, saying, oh, Monday isn't a Monday because guess what? Every single message that we consume from media, from our friends, from internet, from everything reminds us that Monday is Monday. Um, so it's something you need to constantly work, work toward. But when you can remove that meaning of what Monday is, it totally opens up this new possibility of whatever you want that day to be. Wow. For more on Brendan, Rory, and Peopledelphia, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash Lowry. That's L-O-W-R-Y. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at podphillywho. Special thanks to Brendan for being a guest. Music by Lee Rosevere. Podcast art by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next week.